0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So this talk is about partner choice markets and the evolution of cooperation. And uh, let me start by explaining what I mean by the term trade. Um, This is usually supposed to be a mutually beneficial exchange of materials or services. And in some sense, one could say when something is mutually beneficial, it should occur. But uh, suppose that you see this basket of apple that you might buy from a farmer, and it would be nice for you to have these wonderful apples, and it would be nice for the farmer to get the money, but despite the fact that that would be mutually beneficial, there might be another deal. There might be another farmer having the same apples for a lower price or better apples and so forth. So a better deal may be possible with another partner, and this is the flavor of a market. This is the most essential feature of a market. Now, markets do occur in principle in the animal world, but I will start with a fictitious example in order to show why it is interesting to look at the animal world in terms of markets. Here we see a fictitious boa, we called it the boa constructor, because it's not a real thing it's, and the bird that you see is a shadow bird they don't exist either and our boa lives in a very hot area it is very good at defending the eggs but very bad at uh, providing shade at pro- protecting it from solar radiation the poor shadow bird is very bad at protecting her eggs but uh, she is uh, very good at shading them. So, what would you expect to happen? You would to, uh, well, what could happen in principle uh, in, in evolution is that the boa allows the shadow bird to lay eggs uh, together with uh, the boa. And, um, and then the bird would protect these eggs from solar radiation. Perfect deal. The boa defends the eggs and they get shaded by the shadow birds. Now, when you look at this shadow bird, it has very, a very short tail. That's not so good for providing shade. Imagine that there would be variation among tail lengths in shadow birds, and that the boa would have a choice between different shadow birds. Of course, the boa now would choose the one with the longer tail. And as a result, you would see the evolution of elongated tails in the shadow birds. Now, why is this interesting? In the spirit of this example, for example, partner choice could have promoted the evolution of prosocial tendencies in humans, despite the fact that these tendencies are costly. But the question is, have we ever seen the evolution of partner choice leading to um, a change in properties of other animals? And so what I want to do now is to give you an example, which is not exactly the shadow bird, of course. And um, when we thought about introducing the market idea in biology, this was together with Ronald Noé, um, we thought that maybe that a phenomenon described by ornithologists, namely delayed plumage maturation in male birds, um, that that might be driven by social partner choice. Now, how would that happen? Um, Here you see a lazuli bunting, a very bright, brightly colored animal. And uh, what Green and others have shown is uh, that um, yearlings, I mean males that are sexually mature, differ tremendously in their coloration. Some still look like kids. And others look like real adult males. And you wonder, why would a male want to look like a kid. and So that is probably not very good if you want to be chosen by a female. Um, now here we see um, a situation out in the field. There's one, the, uh, the bird on the left, is what I call the principle. This is only because I want to use some terminology from economics. In biological terms, he is... He, the owner of a territory, of a mating territory, and he's in control of what happens in this territory. Now, the other bird is uh, that I call the agent here because I want to relate this all to a theory called principal-agent models in economics. The other bird um, is uh, a yearling, and as you can see, the coloration is much less bright than that of the principal. So he gets permission by the principal. To settle in the territory of the principal. But an, an important prerequisite for this is the dull coloration. The, the principals only accept dull looking males as social partners in their mating territories. These uh, males, that I call agents here, can attract a female. They are allowed to attract a female. That's, that's actually the whole point why they are permi- get permission to stay in the territory. But they have to share the female with the principal. Not unheard of, by the way, in human societies. Um, and as a result, we think now the, the interesting what Green and Al have shown is that these dull males, um, although they don't look very maleish, actually are fairly successful in terms of uh, the offspring they produce. Um, and so it seems to be advantageous to look young in these birds. And the funny thing is that social selection here drives the birds to have dull colors, whereas sexual selection would do exactly the opposite, as we have seen in many other examples. Now let's look uh, for a second um, how the buntings accomplish that trade. The important thing is that the principle dictates the terms of the exchange. It's in his, He has the power to enforce his interests. This is why he gets access to the other guy's female. And the agent, um, the dull looking male, pursues his own interest. Um, of course he's interested in mating, having offspring, and he will look after the offspring because at least some of the offspring is his. So they both look very much in their own interest. There is not much concern about others. There's no contract. And it's a fairly selfish behavior that explains this cooperation. Now, there are two things that I find important. First of all, that uh, what the agent uh, does by pursuing his own interest as a byproduct contributes to the principal's reproductive success. We often find that in cooperation, that what one of the partners does is, uh, is done for certain reasons, and as a byproduct, it helps someone else. And the other thing is that there's no contract. Now, an economist would be astonished to see this. Why do biologists talk about markets when there are no enforceable contracts? Because much of the conventional theory in economics is based on the idea that you can have a contract. Because only then can you bargain over what is the price uh, of this car when you want to buy it and so forth, and then settle on something, and then you will actually get the the car for this price. In the animal world, there is no contract, and whatever they bargain about the price doesn't matter because they wouldn't get it anyway, uh, perhaps. And uh, so I must come up here with a warning. In biology, the famous law of supply and demand that we are so used to, in, at least in textbook, uh, in conventional textbook economics, does not apply. And let me give you, um, instead, I mean, one has to really be worried about the question. How can power be exercised? How is cheating controlled? What is the cost of changing partners? What do individuals know about alternatives? All these things, you really have to worry about what determines the terms of exchange. Only then can you start modeling this. You cannot rely blindly on something like the law of supply and demand. Now let me, let me give one well-known example that shows I mean, how far away you get from the law of supply and demand. And this is the, the mating market. I think I don't have to say what that is. Um, now, in, in, in textbooks, what you now find very often is a basic story that is boring because we've heard it so often that um, eggs are big, like in this case, exaggerated, and sperm small. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, if, you, uh, if you take into account that males and females exist in roughly equal numbers, then this has, of course, a, a consequence that very often what we would observe in populations is an excessive production of sperm. And if you look at mating from a market point of view, we would say there is a, an exchange that takes place. The, 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 the male gets uh, eggs to be fertilized, and the female gets sperm to fertilize her eggs and so forth. But there is this incredible, exe- incredibly excessive overproduction of sperm, and that... As an an economist, you would say, if there were enforceable contracts, females could easily ask a high price from their mates. In biological reality, this gift seems often rather paltry. And uh, females may even receive a poison instead of a diamond, as we see it, for example, in fruit flies, where males inject a protein that is good for the male because... uh, the, he will father more offspring of this female, but the female, over her lifetime, will have fewer offspring, which she doesn't care about. So I think that the animal world demonstrates impressively how narrow the scope for cooperation becomes in the absence of enforceable contracts. Now, the, absible, the absence of enforceable contract does not mean, of course, that there is no sanctioning <laughs> In nature. We heard already some examples today, um, so let me go a little bit. But then you have to really worry about what is the nature of the sanctioning, what, what is possible, what is not possible. And um, in evolutionary ecology people got very interested in for example in mutualisms uh, like the one between leguminous plants and uh, bacteria. These bacteria fix atmospheric nitrogen inside what's called root nodules. Let me just show what these things look like and they get something in return from the plant, so this seems uh, to be mutually beneficial. I mean, it's a mutualism. There's no question about that. And what people have done is they have, for example, made experiments to make it impossible for the bacteria to fix the nitrogen and ask, I mean, how would the plant react to that? And the plant then abandons that part of the root system, um, and uh, and people have interpreted that as uh, sanctioning, but there is now, in, in, in the current literature, people are worried that this might be the wrong interpretation because a plant always would abandon tissue that doesn't work properly. You always see when, when a branch is damaged or so, you see it will be a dead branch. That is the most normal thing for the plant to do, to just give up parts of it that don't work properly. So so that what, what's called sanctioning here did not evolve for the purpose of sanctioning these uh, bacteria, it probably evolved as a very general feature of the plant to deal with any kind of damage. Perhaps the effect is a little stronger in, uh, in the presence of these bacteria, but nobody has shown this. So here again, we see that something that seems to be functional in, the, in, the, in order to make cooperation work is only a byproduct of something else. Now I come... Uh, to another example of uh, altruistic sanctioning. Actually, I come to an example of altruistic sanctioning since we talk about altruism here. And uh, you will first not even see what on earth this has to do with altruistic sanctioning because I talk about indirect reciprocity. Indirect reciprocity is a principle where where you would say for when others are in need of help, um, give aid, help them, but restrict your help to those recipients that have a positive reputation, being good guys, well-behaved. And this is, in some sense, this is also a form of partner choice because when people act like this, then you will see all this aid giving among those who are good guys and the bad guys will not receive aid because now um, this is one way of how one might explain um, what looks like altruism and it was, I think, uh, first uh, suggested by Dick Alexander, whose name we heard several times today. Um, and um, Robert Sagden then, Sagden then um, gave it the first formal treatment that was not widely recognized. And then Martin Novak and Carl Sigmund came up with a model um, that uh, where they tried to show how this can work. Let me go quickly into this. Uh, what Novak and, and Sigmund did was... Um, they looked at a specific updating rule for the reputation, which was as follows. Suppose that someone is asked for help. First of all, you are born with a neutral reputation. And then if you are asked for help and you don't help, others watch that and you, your reputation goes down by one, for, by one unit in the mathematical model. On the other hand, when you are observed to help, your reputation increases by one unit. That was their model. So, very simple, it's a very simple way of updating the reputation. If you help, you score a point. If you don't help, you lose one. And then they tried to convince the community that uh, that this kind of strategy would be an evolutionarily stable strategy that you would expect to find. Actually, they did simulations to sh- to show that But they did this simulation in in an extremely small population that consisted only of 100 individuals, the the entire population. And then randomness, random effects play a major role in in what you see as the outcome of such a simulation. Ola Lehmer and I repeated these simulations. And what we found was that in a decently sized population, the whole phenomenon disappears. These strategies are not stable. They will not evolve. They will not be maintained in evolution. And the main reason is because uh, the updating rule that they use leads to altruistic punishment. Why is that so? Now suppose that I'm asked for help, and uh, I'm supposed to help someone, say Randy, and, and Randy has uh, a bad score, he is below zero in this case. Of course, <laughs> in reality it's the opposite. Um, now if, if I then decide not to help him, it looks as if this would be good for me because I, I don't have to pay the price of helping him. But in your eyes, by not helping Randy, I lose reputation. And in these models, that effect is stronger than, um, than this, what I would gain by not, by not uh, providing the help. And so, so there's an altruistic element in their story that they've completely overlooked in the first place because they had this very small population where the mathematical model goes bananas and something. Um, now, Sagden had already given the problem a profounder treatment, and uh, we also uh, worked a little more on this, and... The the most important point here is, I mean, he talks about good and bad standing, just two different states in which you can be. And the important point is that a donor, the donors who do not help a recipient in bad standing, just keep their good standing. This is important. Now, one could say, doesn't this solve all problems? But the point is that. what we can see is that the logic of indirect reciprocity either, either requires altruistic sanctioning, that was the Novak and Sigmund model, or when we follow Sagden, it requires high cognitive skills because now you always have to worry okay, Peter didn't help, and but how about Randy? Is he really a bad guy or so? No, he, of course he's not, he's a good guy and so forth, so there's confusion about all these things. And it's much harder to play the strategy that Sagden suggested. And this brings me to my final slide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good guy, you know. <laughs> and yeah. I think uh, that uh, there, there is one problem with uh, understanding cooperation and altruism. As humans, we are born to be virtuous musicians in a social concert, and this very fact makes it very difficult for us to understand what it takes uh, to be social and to make the social concerts uh, sound so well. In the animal world, I think we often have uh, just... Uh, it's, it's amazing how little it takes to get certain forms of cooperation to work without cause concern about others and all this. And we are so deeply into this that we can hardly imagine such a world to exist. Um, I think that's also one of your messages, and we have to understand these little building blocks. <laughs>